to read it from cover to cover. Um, have you ever picked up your Bible because you know you need to really read it? And you pick it up and you look and you thumb through it, thumb through it. And then you put it back down because honestly you don't even know where to begin. I just know I need something, but where do you go? Um, one of the things that it's good for us to realize is that even in Jesus' day, the topic of God's priority was a primary conversation. What mattered most to God was something they debated all the time. By the time Jesus came along, the religious leaders of his day had come up with 613 specific laws related not to the entire Bible. They didn't even have the entire Bible at that time. It related only to what was called the Torah. Do you, do you guys know what the Torah is? What is it? The Which five books? The first five books, which are also called the Pentateuch. Just making sure you're learning as you go along. So they took the first five books of the Bible and they extrapolated from that 16 or 613 laws that everybody had to keep. Um, of those 613 laws, though, which one was the most important? What was like God's top law? And that's the kind of thing that happened all the time in discussions. When I went to Bible college years ago, uh, we used to hang out in what was called the furnace room because it was the place where the furnace was. And um, we did because it was warm. It was probably the only warm place on campus. So all of us guys would get together in the furnace room, and we would have all kinds of debates about eschatology. We'd talk about, like, what are we going to wear in heaven, and what are people going to look like? What is the age of everybody in heaven? I mean, we talked about this really important stuff. Well, when Jesus was around, the religious leaders of his day did the same thing. They looked at our furnace room, and they would sit and debate these 613 laws to try to decide what is the most important. And then along comes this new young rabbi who's supposed to be somebody special. His name was Jesus. And so they decided, let's ask this newbie what he thinks is God's number one priority. If you turn to Mark chapter 12, Jesus actually has the question asked, and he answers the question, what is the number one priority for God? Turn to Mark 12 and verse 28. If you don't have a Bible, it's up on the screen in front of you if you're a lazy person. Uh, I'm just kidding, that's not good. Mark chapter 12, verse 28. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? And by the way, when they say first commandment of all, they're not talking about first of order. They're talking about first in priority. Okay, so that should be clear. Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, like it is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than 
So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. But after that, no one dared question him. I want to suggest to you this morning that um, the Bible is kind of like these nesting dolls. Have any of you ever seen these kinds of things before? Nesting dolls? You should have them at home. Nesting dolls are kind of cool because you start out with this one big doll, and if you turn it really carefully and you open it, inside is a, another doll. And then if you open that really carefully, to your amazement, there's another doll. And then you open that, and another, and then you open that carefully, and then another, until you end up with the smallest of them all. That is how the Bible is. It's kind of like layer upon layer that we have to be able to discover. So you kind of start with the whole Bible. That's the big picture. But the whole Bible is kind of big to think about as one big unit. So you break it down in parts. And then you begin to think about the fact that the Bible has 23,145 verses. Is that easier to take? No. So you break it down a little bit farther, and you find out that the Bible actually has 1,189 chapters. Feel better about that? <laughs> Not yet. Okay. Then you break it down into the fact that, like the Jews, you can say, well, let's narrow that down to 613 Torah laws. Does that feel better? Just keep those 613 laws, and you're okay with God. That's all it takes. Every single day, never break one of them, and you are a perfect man. Well, let's narrow those down to ten commandments, God's big tenness. That seems a little bit better, doesn't it? A little bit more doable. But then what Jesus does is he takes all of this and breaks it down into the two most important commandments that God could give. And those two most important commandments were simply this. And again, I'm, I'm kind of extrapolating from what Jesus said. It's number one, to love God, and number two, to love people. So what I want to talk to you very briefly about this morning is loving God and loving people. Now, that's what Jesus says matters most to God. That seems very simple, but I want us to actually look at what Jesus said in a little bit more depth. Not a lot, but just a little bit, because we're intending over these next weeks to actually break them down more for you. So, number one, I want to talk to you first about loving God. Jesus actually, I don't know if you realize this, Jesus is actually quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, which is called, by the way, by the Jewish people, the Shema, or the Shema. The Shema. The Shema is something that a good Jewish person would repeat every single morning. It's kind of like where you might wake up and you say your morning prayers. The Jews would say their Shema. And the Shema is this, in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So he's telling us how we are to love God. In what way we're to love God. 
first of all, he says, we're to love God with all of our heart. The word in the Greek for heart is, I put it up here for you, for those of you that like to be impressed with Greek words, is the word cardia, from which we get our word cardiac. But when Jesus is speaking about the heart, he's not talking about the actual physical organ. I thought about actually putting up a picture of the heart, but I thought that might be too gross for some, so I didn't. He's not talking about the actual physical organ inside your chest that beats on a regular basis, hopefully. That works better that way. What he's talking about is the non-physical side of us, the side that represents our emotions and our spiritual life. When the Bible refers to the heart, it really is referring to the totality of who we are on the inside, the core of our being, our person, or another way of saying it would be our personality. So it deals with our emotions, our feelings. Think about this. What, what kind of things do we feel sometimes? Tell me. What are some feelings? Fear. Love. Okay, that helps with all. What else? Anger. What? Sadness. Anxiety. Happy. Confusion. Joy. All of those are our feelings, which make up part of what it means for us to say with all of our heart, to use your emotions, so that when you stand there stoically, you stand there like you are an oak tree planted during worship, and you say, with all of our lips, we'll praise you. With all of our lips, we'll praise you. With all of our lips, we'll praise you. It's like, come on, where is your emotion? But not just our emotion, also our personality. That which reflects who we are. And people, I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but people are different. How many of you here would say that you are like, you're kind of like extroverted in your personality style? You like to be out there. Can I see your hands? If you're an extrovert, you, you like crowds, you like people, you like, you like being the life of the party. You like, you like to talk. If no question's being asked, you'll answer it anyways. That's kind of like you. You like life. How many of you are not like that? You're more like, I can't even ask because you won't raise your hands anyway. <laughs> What's the point? People's personalities are different. Some are more choleric in nature. They, they like, they know what they know. Things are black and white. There's right and wrong, and that's all there is to it. And they tend to be right. That's what it is. I want things done right, which, by the way, happens to be my way. And then there's some who are like, there's others who tend by personality type to be a little bit more curious, a little bit more contemplative, maybe even sometimes totally against accepted in nature. You can fall into that very easily if you're not careful. When Jesus says we're to use all of our heart to love God, he means all that makes up who you are, your emotions and your personality, which means, by the way, God also made you the way you are. And you need to learn to celebrate and love God with how he made you, not how he made somebody else. When we went to our first church, I, I became the pastor of the church, and it was a rural country church. I'm not talking about like this, this church here, this, this area, Warsaw. I think Warsaw, by the way, is the biggest city we've ever lived in. I mean, Warsaw is like humongous. 
Warsaw has a Walmart, a McDonald's. Five banks. I mean, Warsaw is like a metropolis. We moved to our first church. It was a rural country church. Country. You, know, you understand country? Country is not like this. Country is like country. When we would walk down the road with our kids in the stroller, people who were out in the yard would turn around and go into their house. They didn't want anything to do with anybody. If you weren't born there, if you weren't raised there, you're an outsider. We don't want you. Here was my problem. They wanted a preacher who stood up and yelled at them, who pounded the pulpit with his shoes. They wanted an extrovert. I am far different than that. And I tried to fit into their mold, and I just couldn't do it. Because that's not who God made me. If I'm going to love God, even in what I do, I have to love God with how he made me. To love God with all your heart is to love him deeply, personally, and fully. But then he says, love the Lord your God, not only with all your heart, but with all your soul. The Greek word that's used there is psuche, from which we get our word psyche. We think of that as mental, but that's not really how the Jews understood it. The Jews understood that the, the core of all of who you are doesn't start here. It starts deeper than that. So he says, with all of your soul. It encompasses who you are in connection with the world. The things that you do that make you who you are. So if I went up to, uh, let's say I didn't know him, and I went up to Ben and I said, Hi, my name's Chris. Who are you? Ben. Does Ben tell me a whole lot about him? Does his name tell you anything about him at all? Other than maybe it might be short for Benjamin. Maybe. In my case, that's not true. My name is Chris. It is not short for Christopher. My parents were sure that I would not be very bright in life, and they didn't want to saddle me with two long names, so they have to know how to spell. So they kept my first name very, very short. But I go to Ben, and I say, hi, what's your name? He says, Ben. That doesn't tell me anything about him. Now, if Ben were to say to me, hi, my name is Ben, and uh, I, I served God by being a youth in Family Life Church, I've attended Elam Bible Institute where I graduated. I met my wife. We've gotten married. We have three children. So I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a son. It begins to flesh it out in terms of who he is as his identity. When he uses the word soul, that's the kind of thing he's talking about. The things in your life that flesh out who you are. So that when we talk about soul, it has more to do with function and activity than somehow what you would consider psyche in this particular modern age. So loving God with all your heart and with all your soul means allowing God to define who you are and what you are. It's This is who God made me to be. And this is how I am going to love him with all of my heart. I'm going to do it. And then I'm going to do it with all of my soul. Next, Jesus added something, by the way, that was not in Deuteronomy. He added a phrase that was not in the chain. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your mind. And the Greek word that's used there is dianoia. Yes, it means your mind, uh, your thinking process, all of that. It absolutely means that. It's the center for intellectual activity. But it has more than that. Captured in that word is the idea of creativity. 
activity. It has the idea of imagination. It has the concept of logic and rationale blended with that creative side that God has put within you. Loving God with all your mind means that you are willing to learn to grow in your love for God. You're willing to become a serious student of God, to learn about his beauty, to learn about his amazing, immense intellect, to learn his goodness, his kindness, his mercy, his love for us. So that when Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your mind, that's the kind of thing he's talking about, which is why, by the way, we have begun, as was announced, a new believers class. It is for new believers, people who are new in their faith, but it's also for people who maybe have never had the opportunity to do a class like that, where you can learn about some of these essentials of your faith which tell us about who God is. So that when we're learning with all of our mind, we're engaging our thought processes in terms of how we can love God. For example, um, I don't know about you, maybe this isn't the way it is for you. Sometimes, God is so ethereal, God is so out there that he's like a concept more than a person. It can feel that way sometimes. He's like an idea. And we know that's not true. We know he is a person. He is a real being called the Lord God Almighty. And so when I pray, sometimes it's easy to feel like, and maybe you guys don't feel this way, like you're praying words out there and they're just like hanging out in the air. Are they going anywhere? Is anybody really there hearing them or am I just saying them out loud? And so what I do sometimes is I sit in my office, I sit in a chair in front of my desk, and I take another chair and I set it in front of me and I talk to God. I use my imagination. I say, God, I know you're everywhere at all times with the totality of your being. That's what it means to be omnipresent. So God, I know you're here. I might not see you with my eyes, but I know you're here. So right now in my mind, I'm going to imagine that you're sitting in this chair right next to me. We're going to have a conversation. I'm going to say something to you, and I'm going to believe you're going to say something to me. That's the kind of thing that Jesus meant when he said to love the Lord your God with all your mind. But if you think about some of the great scientists throughout all of time and history, did they not use their minds to celebrate God? Whether it be the ones who have discovered the fact that our earth is not flat, but is round, and they gave it to the glory of God, or ones who came up with amazing math formulas, all of that was used to celebrate the goodness of God. And then finally, Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your strength. The word that's used there is istis, istis. And strength here has nothing to do with how much weight you can bench press. What he's talking about here is your time and energy output. Are you giving your all to God? Is it, it has to do with your so that when we're worshiping God in song, and you just stand there like a dodo, are you putting any strength into that? Any strength of your being? I'm not talking about the fact whether you jump up and down like a net. I don't care about that. I'm not talking about whether you got your hands. I'm talking about are you putting the strength of your being into worshiping God? Is something going out of you towards the Lord? It's your effort, your time, your energy. In fact, a great scripture that Paul actually uses to kind of capture this idea is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. I love that. Heart. Brings you the same word. Heartily. Do it with all of your might as unto the Lord. 
love God with everything that's in you. That's what Jesus is saying. Everything you are, everything that makes you who you are, everything you do, everything you think, let it dishonor, glory, love to God. Do it with all of your being, every fiber of your being. Now, that's quite a command. We're to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. I mean, if you think about it, it's hard enough to love your spouse and children. How do you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind? How do you do that? And the answer is very simple. This. You can't. You can't do it. You don't have it within you to do it. None of us does. In fact, the only one who has ever done it perfectly is the one who actually just spoke this command. And his name is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who has ever loved God fully and strong. So how do we do it? We need his help. We need God to help us. Uh, John Piper, some of you might have heard of him. Baptist. He's also written several books. But one of his books is called The Letter in God. And he summed it up this way. He said, take all of your longing and focus it on God. And he'll be satisfied with you. Take everything that's inside of you and do that. Write it down. God, I got no other place to go. All of my hope, all of my soul, all of my mind, all of my happiness, all of it's in you. And God, when I deal with anxiety, when I deal with fear, when I deal with confusion, I turn back to you. Because you're the only one all of that. And then one of my other favorite authors, some of you might have heard of him, Matthew Lucado. He says this, God rewards those who seek him. Not those who seek doctrine or religion or systems or creeds. Many settle for lesser happiness. But the reward goes to those who settle for nothing less than Jesus Christ. And what is the reward? What awaits those who seek Jesus? Nothing short of the heart and the true God. That's what it means to love God with all that you are. So God's not an accessory that you carry around when it's convenient. If you're a believer here today, if you are a God lover, you love God everywhere. It doesn't matter where you are, you love God. And you're going after him. You're pursuing him with all of your being. It's not just when it's convenient, like in church, when everybody's kind of doing the same thing. It's also when you're down at Bucks, or you're in the courts, or you're in Walmart, or you're at your workplace, or in your home. You're not different. I've heard stories just recently that honestly boggle my mind, my mind, that men, even men in this church, act a certain way in here, but they act a completely different way at home. I would say to you what Paul would say. Brethren, these things ought not be so. You ought to be the same everywhere. That we are going to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. That's also, by the way, uh, I don't know how many of you guys heard the announcement that was made uh, last week. And by the way, I know that there are things that are coming in Detroit, and you haven't even heard yet. And some of you love changes. 
and some of you guessed. I, I appreciate so much. As soon as the announcements got done with the video thing, it's probably the first time I'd ever done that. It's so weird seeing yourself. It's kind of like the first time you hear yourself on a recording because it's like, ooh. And, and there's Caleb. Caleb comes running over and he says, Grandpa, Grandpa, Grandpa. But I love kids. Kids come back and say, I did. I felt that was good. I like that. And there are some of you sitting here today who the whole time are thinking, I don't like that at all. I don't like it. I don't like the new bulletins. I don't like how you're doing anything. I like it the old way. Okay. Can I just suggest how much you can open hearts and dreams for a while? You know, some of the things that we do now that you like so much that we've been doing for a little while, we didn't used to do. That was a change too. And when we started doing them, people didn't like them. So calm, calm down, relax. It's okay. This isn't your salvation. One of the things I announced uh, last week is that for the last few years, which hasn't been all that long, by the way, for the last few years, we've had kind of some themes in the back with the prayer people and worship leaders. We didn't used to do that at all. When we had prayer, we had prayer at the end of the service. And so we, after prayer, and Christian Bible said, what we're going to do is we're going to do the same kind of thing that we used to do. We used to have prayer at the end of the service, and we're going to do that by stations. They're called helps. Helps refer to healing, so that's the H. Encounter, which refers to just wanting a fresh encounter with God. L is life, where you're facing life situations that are challenging. P is for the prophetic. You just need a prophetic word for whatever's going on in your life. And then S is for salvation. We're going to have stations across the front end, the fourth time you come out. And I had somebody say to me, oh, sure, that means nobody will pray for me any other time. Are you really kidding me? Are you that immature that you really think no one will ever pray for you ever again except for on the fourth time you come out? This is a way for you to encounter God in a fresh way and to fall freshly in love with God. Have people join with you in prayer. That's what we're about as a church. So the first thing Jesus said is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the first great command. Then he says, number two, you're to love people. But I want you to hear what he says. He says, you're to love your neighbor as yourself and then he adds this little phrase in the midst of it, and he says, you need to hear me that this like the first. In other words, I want you to get this in your mind. You can't separate number two from number one. They have to go together. The first is likened unto the second, and we're going to look at that in just a minute here. But that's his main position. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And here he's still quoting from the Torah. And by the way, this is also one of those much debated, much misunderstood portions of scripture that the Jewish leaders love to fight about. It's from Leviticus 19.18, and it says, You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I love how Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, links that last portion. I am the Lord. You're loving your neighbor. He links it together, even as Jesus did. Now, during Jesus' day, there was all kinds of debate and argument about who is your neighbor. For most of the Jewish leaders, they defined neighbor, first of all, as a Jew. You had to be a Jew. And then secondly, you had to be a devout Jew. You had to be a Jew who practiced faithfully keeping the law. Everybody else was lumped into a category. That category was called sinner. Or another word that Jesus actually uses is the word dog. So it would not have been unusual at all 
for the Jewish people to report the Gentiles or anybody who was non-Jew as a dog, a sinner. In fact, Jesus said at one point, the Pharisees came to him and they said to his disciples in Matthew 9-11, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Here he's linking together tax collectors, which were, by the Jews, considered the lowest of all sinners. When he says sinners, the, the Pharisees don't mean necessarily that you broke the law. They're saying you're not a Jew. Why do you eat with people who aren't Jews? You're those sinners. So here Jesus is trying to help them to understand and to broaden their understanding of what it means to love your neighbor. But he tells them the story about the Good Samaritan, which I'm not going to get into right now. We'll probably do that in a number of weeks. But I want you to keep that story in your mind even as I talk. He gives a story to help them to understand what does it mean to be a neighbor. But generally speaking, he says, here is who your neighbor is. Your neighbor is everybody with whom you come in contact. Not just those who are mean, although that would surely. But it's everybody with whom you come in contact. He has said, those are your neighbors. And those are your neighbors. And you should love your neighbor even as you love yourself. And be even one step down toward loving God. For I am the Lord. You see, loving people is just an extension of loving God. Jesus could not give the first great commandment without giving the second commandment because they're tied together. Because loving people is the visible manifestation of loving God. In fact, Jesus takes it a step farther. He says, you say you're a believer? Great. Here's how people will know that you're a disciple. By the love that you have for one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. My father and I used to love to point out that that's not what the scripture says. It says, by the love that you have one to another. Because it's possible to feel love for somebody and to demonstrate it. Love to demonstrate it. Not enough to say you love. I, mean, I have people say to me all the time, Ken, how many of you ever watched like the Miss America pageant? Any of you guys ever do that? And they ask you the question, you know, the stupid questions at the end that everybody's already known what the questions are in practice. And invariably, one of the questions is, what would you like most? What's most important to you? I, I, the most important thing on my agenda is your happiness. Well, there are Christians who say, I love everybody. But not love everybody. I love people generally. And it's easy to say, I love people generally. I love people. I love the world. Until they're your neighbors who are next to you and they're borrowing your tools without your permission. Until they're the people driving down the road too slowly and they're driving you nuts. Flashing their lights at you like, would you please speed up? It's easy to say, I love people. The question is, do you demonstrate love to people? Um, Gary Chapman wrote a book called The Five Love Languages. I don't know. How many have ever read that? The Five Love Languages? He says there are five ways that you can demonstrate love. And I, I like these. They're words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, physical touch, and gifts. Those are the ways that you can express love, that people receive love and express love. Well, I think if you think about it in terms of God, it's easy for us to express words to God. We do that when we sing our words, uh, sing our worship. When we pray to him, it's easy to do words in that way. We can even do quality time with God, where we spend time praying devotionals together. We spend time in God's presence. But how is 
it that we are to give acts of service to God? How are we to give a gift to God? How are we to physically touch God? And I would suggest to you, you can't do any of those unless you do it to people. Because the way you do it to people is the way you do it to God. In fact, Jesus put it this way. Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these my brethren, you did it to me. There Jesus links that what you do to people is what you're really doing to God. He says, what, what do you mean? Well, when I was hungry, you fed me. He goes, no, no. We never saw you hungry, Lord. He says, no, when you did it to people, you did it to me. So the way in which we express our love to God has to have the component of loving people attached to it. 1 John 4, 20 says this. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him. So he who loves God must love his brother also. Everything in this life is an opportunity for you to reflect your love to God. But you do it by how you love people around you. See, it's not enough to come into church on a Sunday morning to raise your hand in worship, to sing loudly, to dance, to twirl around, and then not love people throughout the week. Not to care for people who are in need. Not to rearrange your schedule. Do you know how often love is really reflected by you dropping your agenda and your schedule and helping somebody in need? Even though it's not what you planned, you had things on your agenda. But you do it anyways, using your resources to help to meet the needs of people around you. And what we are encouraging people here in Family Life Church is that we would find a way to actively love people. Nobody's next Sunday night. We're actually going to flesh that out for you more. In fact, for the next two Sundays, Pastor John is actually going to be speaking about this very thing. How can we love people? And how can we love worship? Peter says it this way. Peter says, if you're a believing wife and you have an unbelieving husband, if you will live in a way that is loving and kind and gracious, if you will comport yourself well, it's possible that just by your love, you can win your unbelieving husband back. Well, if that's true in a marriage relationship, isn't it equally true out here just in our regular societal relationships? That maybe my time down at Bud's isn't wasted? Maybe as I learn how to become friends with those people and connect to those people, that when they have issues, they might actually raise them to me, and I might have an opportunity to actually demonstrate the love of God to them in a very clear way. Jesus said this, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to do everything I have commanded you. That's called the Great Commission. But Jesus didn't call that the Great Commandment. What he called the great commandment was love the Lord your God and love people. Now, what does love look like? Go back to 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That's love. I had somebody just recently say to me, as a believer, 
true enough for you. If you do me wrong and you repent, I'll forgive you. I'll give you one last chance. But if you do it again, I'll wipe you off my books and you'll be gone. Now, when you need to thought about this, now I think I can say this. Peter says, how many times do I need to forgive my brother and receive him as my brother? And Peter thought he was being a big dick, and he says, seven times? I'm going way over, because the Jews said three. Three times. And so Peter says, how about I double that and add one extra? I'll do it seven times. And Jesus says, no, I'm telling you 70 times seven. In other words, you never stop. That's what it means to love your neighbor. Over the next couple weeks, Pastor John will uh, share more about this. Because in some ways, it's really easy to say, I love until it actually meets on the earth. And you have to love the person that you're trying to love. Who honestly does some things that you don't always really like, you don't understand, you don't agree with. That's not how you were raised. That's not how you were trained. So it's easy to develop judgmentalism towards people. And as Jesus says, we are to love people in the same way as God. In fact, loving people reflects how we love God. So, again, that'll be coming up over the next several messages. But this morning, I just want to give you an opportunity to pray. For me as a believer, I want to find a way, I want to find the grace of God that will help me to love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind. That's, that's what's inside of me. I want to learn how to love God more. And if that's in your heart, I'm going to ask you, if there's, if there's something you're looking at, would you stand and say, that's me. That's what I want in my life. Would you just stand if that's inside of you? If it's not, I understand. Maybe you feel like you've already got all of it. You got it down. And remember, and again, you'll hear more about it over the next couple weeks. You can't say I love God if you don't love your neighbor, your closest neighbor, your brother, your sister, to love people Everything that I am, everything you made me to be, my personality, my weirdnesses, all of that stuff is directed towards you. I want to love you with all of my heart. Would you join with me? Father, we thank you for your word. You challenged us. You put out that litmus test. You said, this is the, the, the measurement what it means to be a disciple, to be my follower. Not enough just to come to church. Not enough just to put an offering in. It's not enough uh, to pray once in a while or to lift our hands. We must love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. And we must love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Lord, we're thrown to you. We know we can't do this on our own strength. Love is great. Even as in our own marriage, we've learned that we need your help to know how to love one another. Well, Lord, we need your help if that's you for which you deserve it. To be able to demonstrate that, to reflect that in our daily lives. So, Lord, where we fall short, instead of receiving judgment, instead of feeling bad, instead of feeling guilty and ashamed and hiding in fear and giving up, 
Lord, we turn right back towards you. Say, God, you are our strength. You are our help. You are our hope. So we put all of our eggs in that one basket and we say, God, we are going to go out and we're going to find a way by your help, by your grace, to love you in a way that only you can. Lord, we commit our hearts to that today. Lord, we are going to pursue this partnership here in church, but at home, in our marriage, how we treat our spouse, how we treat our extended family, how we treat our children and grandchildren. We're going to demonstrate love in that way. We're going to be consistent loving you at home. We're going to love you at work. We're, We're going to be your witnesses wherever we are, whether it be our business or somebody else's business. It doesn't matter. We're going to love you in the midst of it, and we're going to demonstrate that by how we comport ourselves. We're going to love you outside of the marketplace, even in the places of business that we do things. Uh, We're going to love you uh, in the stores that we attend, the restaurants that we go to. Lord, we're going to show our love for you in a clear and definitive way. Commit that to your heaven and earth, that that's what's inside of us. We want to be wholehearted, hearty, God-loving. We pray it now.